Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. You were just listening to John Kane and Regan DeLogans on Let's Talk. As you know, given the urgency that we self-isolate and socially distance ourselves as much as possible, many of your hosts, or rather all of your hosts, are doing these shows remotely. So I want to thank you for your patience with me. I've never claimed to be very tech savvy and likely what you may hear during the show are a number of sirens because I'm broadcasting from Jackson Heights and only less than a mile, about three quarters of a mile from Elmhurst Hospital, uh, which has seen quite a number of cases as well as a number of deaths amid the coronavirus. Uh, the mayor today held another news conference. Uh, the governors held another news conference. I'm going to give you some of those updates shortly. Uh, but I want to thank you for tuning in to WBAI and, and sticking with us uh, through this and staying with many of our shows like Let's Talk. Like many of you, I'm holed up inside. I've been heeding the warnings from our health officials, from our elected officials to try to stay away from others right now, try not to go outside, take a number of these precautionary measures that they've stressed for weeks. Uh, but I can see this can be a struggle. I mean, we have to eat. We have we feel the need to move around. We want to socialize. But the end goal, no matter how you feel about all these measures that are in place, like the threats of fines if you ignore social distancing orders uh, when going outside, is that uh, we eradicate this virus here in the country and, of course, globally. So like my colleagues Max and Murphy yesterday, I've shifted much of my focus of the show to the coronavirus, COVID-19, and how it's been changing our lives from the businesses that we frequent to the schools that our kids go to to our our very livelihoods so first before we get to my first guest today i want to just give you a few updates from the news we're getting close to a million cases worldwide that's according to john hopkins university the coronavirus has killed more than forty-seven thousand people uh globally the Trump administration now concedes that the outbreak could lead to as many as 240,000 deaths. And what's becoming much clearer is that people without symptoms may be driving the spread of the virus. And because of this, the CDC, if you hadn't heard, the CDC is reconsidering the guidelines on who should cover their face. Currently, New York and New Jersey lead the nation in coronavirus cases. And just uh, within the last day or two, members of the House sent a letter to the Health and Human Services uh, Department urging that they prioritize $100 billion in hospital spending. That's from that $2, uh, $2 trillion rescue bill. Uh, they want that to go to hospitals in New York and New Jersey. Now, again, while the bulk of coronaviruses here in New York State have occurred in New York City, the state has had a significant number. The latest numbers, over 92,000 confirmed cases here in New York State and 2,373 deaths. That's as of this morning. Uh, the numbers just continue to escalate. Uh, one of the latest numbers, let's see, 51,809 positive cases here in New York City. The numbers just continue to escalate. And if we have time during the show, I'll be able to provide you with more of those numbers. But the governor held his daily news conference a little while ago. And he basically said that at the rate we're going, the stockpile of the ventilators that the, uh, the state has, the 2,200 ventilators that are in stockpile, those are going to dissipate quickly. That's as the uh, number of positive cases continues and the number of people who need uh, these ventilators escalates. It's now predicted 
that about 16,000 New Yorkers could die from this virus by the time that the pandemic runs its course. So I'm sorry I'm bringing you more of this dire news if you've not been tuning in uh, to hear the governor's press conference or the, uh, or, uh, the mayor's press conferences. Uh, I, you know, I wanna bring you these numbers and the latest developments. Another sad fact, and this is just astounding when you think about how well the economy had been doing prior to the coronavirus. The Labor Department reports that more than 6.6 million Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week. That's a record, and that's double the number of people who sought benefits two weeks ago. So essentially, this is the number. 10 million jobs have apparently disappeared in this short period of time. And so what we've also been hearing about every day is the governor's press conferences. Lots of chatter about should he run for president? Should he be considered for vice president? We're going to talk about that with my first guest in just a few moments. Let me check. Reggie, is our first guest on the line? Not yet. Hold on. Let's see. Okay. We'll come back in a few moments, see if we've got our first guest on. But if you've been tuning in to the governor's press conferences, then you've probably, I mean, as I have, you've probably felt he's being candid, he's being very open, and giving us, you know, as difficult as it can be okay he's Jeff, giving us him. great the raw numbers and then you compare that with how president trump has handled his news conferences so we're going to talk about that with my first guest Dave, new york uh former new york state governor david patterson he served as our 55th governor from early 2008 and 2010 and among his many achievements his accomplishments he was the first non-white secretary of state in new york first African-American vice chair of the National Democratic Party. In 1985, he was elected to represent Harlem in the New York State Senate, and in 2002 became the minority leader for the New York State Senate. Uh, and he made history again in 2004 when he became the first visually impaired person to address the Democratic National Convention in Boston, Massachusetts, and then was elected New York's first African-American lieutenant governor in 2006. And one of his other big accomplishments was he hired me as his communications director, to be perfectly open with you, back when he ran for lieutenant governor. David Patterson, welcome back to WBAI. It was a very long negotiation, Jeff, and I'm glad we could probably, we finally could, could reel you in. Thank you so much. So you've been <laughs> likely tuning in uh, to Governor Cuomo's daily briefings. Assess how he has done. I would give him an A++. He is the governor. He is the epidemiologist. He is the friend. Uh, he's the statistician. And he's the psychiatrist. Uh, as I said to the Atlantic when they interviewed me last week, who needs Dr. Phil? We should just turn on uh, from two to three every day and watch Andrew Cuomo. Uh, the governor early in his career had uh, a few misadventures with statements he made to the press and that kind of thing. And I think ever since then, he's been very, very careful not one to seek the headlines, uh, you know, almost every word is uh, researched a few times before he uses it. And I think maybe maybe the first day, that's how he did these daily briefings. Since then, he's really owned it. He, he just talks about situations that are personal to him and his family. Of course, his brother was diagnosed with the coronavirus the other day. 
And he, uh, I mean, he's really been that good. And he's become uh, the beneficiary, which is not a great term, but it's true, of uh, the coronavirus the same way Rudolph Giuliani was Mr. September 11th. He got on television and uh, not, you know, he didn't come on that many times. Uh, this governor's been on for the last two weeks. But uh, uh, he became the voice of the resistance, the voice of America in those days. And right now, I would say that Governor Cuomo is the most popular elected official in this country. So then why doesn't he run for president? Well, uh, his biggest problem is that he endorsed the person who's going to get the nomination, Joe Biden. But, you know, um, uh, I still think that President Trump would get reelected in a one-on-one race with Biden. Because Biden, in my opinion, in 2008, in 1988, and this year as well, has failed to garner the kind of support that he would need to win. He's not a charismatic figure. He's well-liked. He's as decent a person as anyone I've ever met. But we had the same problem four years ago. Hillary Clinton, one-to-one, when you're talking to Hillary Clinton, uh, they say when you talk to President Clinton, you feel like you're talking to someone one-to-one. Hillary Clinton has a tremendous uh, personality in in that environment, but never had it when she was on stage. And, you know, these aren't, uh, it's just the way people receive individuals, and there's some who just have a knack for being able to command attention, and uh, the the governor has that. But uh, I don't, uh, you know, unless Biden voluntarily stepped aside, I don't think he's going to do that. Uh, I think we're going to see him as a candidate against Trump, and I think the odds right now are that the president would be reelected. And it's interesting you say that because uh, former Obama campaign manager David Plouffe had predicted that there'd be historic turnout for Trump on Election Day, that he's going to get a big turnout. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, that probably won't happen anymore. I think the president's really hurt himself during this coronavirus period, uh, he at first scoffed at it and said it was like the flu, don't worry about it. Then on uh, February 22nd, the day before the South Carolina uh, primary, which is really February 21st, he went to uh, South Carolina and had a rally, which is uh, his want to do the day before the Democratic event, and said that he thought the whole thing was a hoax. Uh, when he finally got around to getting serious about it, he was serious for a few days and then said he was going to reopen the country on Easter Sunday as if he was going to uh, compare the, resurre- the resurrection of Jesus in the Christian religion with the uh, reunification of, of the country after this virus, which is just childish. And uh, he's blamed, uh, pointed fingers at New York and New Jersey, saying they were late to the dance. He's the one who was late to the dance. He um, wanted all the states to bid to receive the ventilators. That only drives the price up. And then he has FEMA bid against the other states. And he says, well, we have to make money for the businesses. Well, the ventilator business, uh, other than maybe Zoom, are the only businesses that we know are going to benefit during this 
economic peril that we're in right now. He didn't have to go out and hustle business for uh, companies that build ventilators. So I think he's really exposed himself as someone that doesn't know how to lead and doesn't know how to uh, command uh, a, uh, a, a recovery in these economic times. And I think the biggest and saddest part of the whole thing are the people who get up and defend him. I was on a show the other day, and somebody says, well, well uh, Dr. Fauci told him in the early January not to worry about it. Well, Dr. Fauci didn't tell him to say it was a hoax, and he also didn't tell him to say uh, that, um, uh, you, you know, uh, these other states better watch it. When we give them help, uh, they, they better appreciate it. As if now the uh, guideline to who's going to get money is totally political. Uh, so the man who said he was going to drain the swamp has created an odious environment in the swamp, the likes of which we've never seen before. And, Jeff, I'm not one who just beats up on Donald Trump because he's, uh, you know, because he's a Republican or because of a different stance he's taken. There are a few things he's done that I thought were pretty good. I like that he went to see uh, the uh, president of North Korea. I like that he, he challenged China in the trade market. And, um, and I thought that uh, his whole... Uh, issue of uh, having uh, a, a problem with some of the economic decisions that were made 20 years earlier uh, were actually right. So I don't just beat up on, on him because of it, but I have really been uh, disappointed by his conduct over the last few months. So, yeah, there's been a lot of denial. There's been a lot of blame. Uh, there's also been a considerable comparisons with how our governor has responded to this and the president. But if you looked at the New York Times today, there was a very critical piece concerning uh, or comparing Cuomo versus our mayor, Bill de Blasio. Essentially, the piece had said that uh, that de Blasio was filling a different role as a punching bag. How would you describe the mayor's response to this pandemic? I get the feeling that the mayor cares about the city, but I've felt from the time he took office in the beginning of 2014 that he is sort of tone deaf. He just doesn't understand uh, how to make decisions and how to implement policy. So while he's been criticized because of his political feelings by people, uh, you know, on the right who wouldn't like him anyway, he's also gotten criticism by people who supported him because he doesn't seem to be able to make the trains run. And although that's always sort of a derogatory term about elected officials, but it's the first thing that you have to be able to do. So he says he, he takes too long to say he's closing down the schools. And then just sort of shockingly on uh, March 15th, the day before he announced he's closing the schools down, just not recognizing that parents, sometimes it takes two or three days to make plans for where you're going to send your children when they don't go to school. And two days later, almost like he goes one way, and then he, to the extreme, then he goes the other way to the extreme, he says he's going to put the whole city on a shutdown within 48 hours, which scared everybody. And finally, the governor had to come in and put a stop to it. Uh, he, you know... 
also comes on for a period of time every day. Uh, at first, he would come on just to yell at the president, as if he thinks the president's listening to him. But I thought to some degree, he knew the president wasn't listening to him, so he could play to the base while Governor Cuomo worked out the, uh, the ways that New York would get help. But, you know, he has kind of uh, watched a couple of Governor Cuomo tapes because he's talked about things personally, been a little more relaxed, had a sense of humor, and is obviously a real student of government. He, he shows that. But he just seems to always be a little bit off of his equilibrium, particularly in these difficult situations. So, uh, Governor, I've been asking guests on several of these shows uh, questions about politics, about policy, but also I want to give a sense of how coronavirus is impacting each one of my guests. So I'm curious how this has impacted you and the people around you. Well, I changed jobs last summer in which the job I have now, there's no office, so I kind of work from home. So I went through last summer what I think a lot of people went, well, all of a sudden you're home every day. And as much as you try to keep up with the work, it just doesn't seem to come together. Um, somebody once said, if you have 10 things to do in, in the morning and you work real hard, you can, you can accomplish it. But if you have nothing to do, no matter how hard you work, you'll accomplish it. So, you, you know, it, it was, so when the virus first began, uh, you know, and, and we, you know, we're localized. There are now more people around my house during the day. But I think uh, the biggest adjustment is it's hard for me to put things into context. I don't know if you've had this problem. I wake up in the morning and I start counting to see what day it is because, uh, you know, I don't really have a schedule. The weekends and the weekdays are basically the same. And uh, it, it's slightly depressing, I would say, and it takes a minute. So I've tried to go back and re-engage uh, some projects that I had, maybe even when I was high, in high school, I was trying to learn how to play the guitar. So 50 years later, I'm trying again. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got just about a minute left. And uh, I just want to get a sense of you've talked a little about the, the work that you're doing. Just remind our listeners about the work, what you're doing these days. So I'm now working for the Las Vegas Sands Corporation. There are three licenses for downstate uh, gaming that will come into effect in 2023, and we want to try to win one of those licenses. And uh, what I want to do, and I think the reason they hired me, was to put the type of minority and, minority and women-owned business enterprise opportunities into the, that, those areas and also to set up schools of hotel management uh, in our universities, uh, which some of them actually have them. But obviously, we could come in and really show them how it's done on a macro level. And to, to uh, recognize that less than 50%, almost 40% of the people who go into our casinos don't go in to gamble. They go in to shop. They go in to... Um, I see shows there, restaurants, and just sort of to be part of the scene. So we think that New York and uh, Japan are the only two areas in the world that don't have that 
uh, opportunity. The public voted for the referendum in 2013. So that's what I'm doing now. And it's, it's exciting again because I get to interact with a number of people that I work with in government. And, uh, and I've enjoyed the time. It's sh- shocking. It's, uh, I've been doing this for about a year now. Former Governor David Patterson, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. Always great to talk to you. Same here. Thanks so much. So you've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and you just heard my interview with former New York State Governor David Patterson. So we're going to go right to the next guest, but I want to preface it by noting that as of today, at least six members of Congress have tested positive for the coronavirus, uh, one United States senator and five members of the House of Representatives, and more locally here, that includes Representative Nidia Velasquez. Uh, more than two dozen uh, members of Congress have gone into self-quarantine after potentially interacting with someone who tested positive, while others have done so because they had been in close contact with the lawmakers who tested positive, and several congressional staff members also have tested positive as well. With that, I want to go up to my next guest, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, first elected to Congress in 1992 to serve the 12th Congressional District in New York. Carolyn Maloney is recognized as a national leader with extensive accomplishments on financial services, national security, the economy, and women's issues. She's currently the chairwoman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. She's the first woman to hold this position. Welcome back to WBAI. Well, good to talk to you, Jeff. I, I missed you from uh, all my days on the city council, and, and I haven't talked to you for a while. We've been so busy in Congress uh, really responding to this, uh, this uh, terrible coronavirus. It's, uh, it's worse. It'll, it will take more lives than 9-11 and Sandy did combined. And it, we're nowhere out of the dark. Uh, the governor says we'll peak in a few weeks, and we're all working madly on it. I'm on the phone all day long with uh, agencies and with Congress on uh, getting supplies and help to our great city and state. And just a little while ago, earlier today, uh, the Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker, had said that the federal response to the coronavirus will, quote, go down in history as a profound failure of our national government. How do you feel about that? I think he's absolutely correct, because we had a warning. We had a warning from China and other countries that had it before us, and we had time to get ready. Uh, China and the World Health Organization and South Korea sent us formulas to do testing, to provide testing kits and information on the virus. Yet our country decided that they were going to create their own testing kit. Well, guess what? They created it, and it didn't work. So we lost valuable, valuable time. And if you look at the countries that have succeeded, it's uh, primarily South Korea. They have tested their entire population. Just 2 to 3% are not tested. Singapore and Taiwan did the same. It is hard to have any control over this virus unless you have it tested and know who is uh, a carrier, who is sick, who has recovered, we have to get that information. I've been talking to nurses and doctors today in the city, and uh, they've been calling because they're frightened 
about their own health. They can't get tested, even if they think they have the virus, because the, the, uh, the direction and guidance coming from the Department of Health says that you have to not only have the cough and the temperature and the throat, but also shortness of breath, meaning you need a ventilator. So you're not even tested until it's time for you to go into the hospital. And so these nurses and doctors are afraid that they are sick with it, yet according to those guidance, they can't be tested. Now I've been told that New York Hospital is now testing their medical personnel, uh, but not the other hospitals. They're following the direction from, from uh, the central government, from Congress, from the president, from our, our administration, and uh, they're not testing. And I, I'm working on a letter right now that says everybody should have the same guidance. And certainly, we're in a war. We're in a war against this virus. And we've got our men and women uh, on the front line not being tested. I read in the New York Times, I don't know which hospital it is, maybe you know, but one hospital had 200 people sick. These were just medical professionals, doctors and nurses, 200 doctors and nurses. So, uh, you know, it's a disaster personified. And it didn't have to be this way. There was a lack of planning. There's still a lack of planning, a lack of information. I'm uh, asking for information every single day from the administration and usually not getting it. And we're in a grave shortage of supplies for our hospitals and for the people who are sick and suffering in our city. So I want to get to the stimulus package. Uh, you, uh, you know, have had some thoughts on this, and also I believe that uh, you had had a town hall and heard some feedback from the hospitality industry uh, that there could be, you know, more done. There may be another package. Can you talk a little about, you know, the current package and what might be on the horizon? Well, I, the care package I call it a disaster relief package because we are in a disaster immediate crisis, and there's so much that needs to be done. In the first bill that was put forward by the Senate, it didn't. It, it helped corporations and other large businesses, but it didn't help people. The bill written by the House, a lot of our provisions were included in it, um, increased the aid dramatically to help people. Uh, out of the $2 trillion, $2.2 trillion, this is the largest relief package in the history of our country. And roughly $40 billion comes in much-needed aid to New York City and state. And even more goes directly to our hospitals and healthcare workers for supplies and things that they need. Uh, the formula will be based on how many uh, COVID-19 people you're treating. So we are treating so many people, so the formula is very advantageous to our hospital. It has over $150 billion, uh, just for hospital care. Uh, but it also has a large uh, portion for unemployment because we have closed down all of our small businesses. Uh, and in my district uh, in Queens and Brooklyn and Manhattan, uh, it's primarily small businesses. And uh, they've had to close and put a lot of people out of work. So we have uh, the unemployment insurance uh, office in our cities and states are just overburdened right now. We also added a $600 a month uh, 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 item. There's federal money to build on top of the state unemployment money. We have direct uh, grant money going to people who have 
filed their taxes and paid their taxes of 1200 per person, 2400 per adult, a couple, and 500 for children. And we have a very important small business package uh, that has a lot of things in it. Uh, the, the, the core program in the small business one is the PPP program, and, and, and that one uh, has a program there called the Paycheck Protection Program. And it's a, design, it's a loan that's designed to provide direct uh, incentives to small businesses to keep their pe people on the payroll. And it will give them uh, a, a, a loan that they will, they will forgive the loan in eight or eight weeks. In other words, it can become a grant, a direct grant, if, it, if the money is used for the payroll, rent, mortgage, interest, or utility. So this is a good uh, program for small businesses uh, but the, many of the restaurants say that it's not enough, that they need more uh, more aid. We are working right now on the, the fourth uh, disaster relief package, and uh, we need to listen to their concerns. I am speaking on another town hall with a community board tonight and have many others uh, set up. We're trying to get feedback on how it could work, but it's devastating uh, to the hotel industry and to the restaurants, which are major businesses in, in New York, and particularly in my district. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I'm on the line right now with Congressmember Carolyn Maloney. Uh, you mentioned the other package, and I've been reading up on that there's already deep partisan fault lines with Republicans pushing back against Democratic priorities. Mitch McConnell said he won't allow unrelated policy items to be able to pass. But uh, Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, held uh, a press conference today and essentially had said, uh, that uh, the a bipartisan House committee will investigate the federal response to coronavirus pandemic, ensure that funding is spent wisely. Your reaction to this? Well, I, I think it's, uh, first of all, we always have fault lines between Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the bill that the Republicans put forward is not the bill we passed. Uh, as I said, those items that I mentioned were what the Democratic caucus put forward. So we'll probably have the same process. We'll put forward our bill, they'll put forward theirs, and we will negotiate and move forward. And uh, and we will be putting workers and people first. And uh, I would say that oversight is incredibly important. Uh, we need to have a very uh, vibrant oversight. We built into the bill, the last bill, several oversight protections, uh, including a, creating an, a new IG that would look at everything, uh, a committee of uh, congressional oversight that would look at it, and uh, and we also gave additional money to GAO just to investigate how the money is being spent, and, uh, and so there's very vigorous oversight, as it well should be. It's taxpayer so money. We are accountable to taxpayers. Now, also, one of the other things more locally that came to light, there had been some reporting on this, uh, and I saw that you had weighed in, and I'd like to bring it up, uh, was that an organization, Samaritan's Purse, uh, was contracted to prepare and create the Central Park Treatment Center that's going to treat patients from Mount Sinai Hospital. But critics have essentially uh, put out there that this is an evangelical Christian organization with strict anti-LGBTQ policies. What assurances do we have that there's not going to be any discrimination? Well, first of all, we put out a, a call for help. 
and they uh, came forward to help. Uh, I was in a phone meeting, that's how we're meeting now, uh, with the head of Mount Sinai, and he very expressly uh, made it clear that uh, the virus does not discriminate and Mount Sinai does not discriminate in any way, shape, or form. And I will make sure that there is no discrimination, only health care. We are in a life and death battle, and we have to focus and work on it. And I am holding them uh, to their responsibility, and I will certainly be monitoring it. So as we speak about that, my, my mind also goes to your record. You've been very outspoken. Uh, in the past about hate crimes and bias. I know that you are a leader in the effort to have Holocaust education in our schools, for instance. Uh, lately, we've been seeing uh, you know, a number of incidents of bias and hate directed at the Asian American community, as well as the Jewish community surrounding the coronavirus. How, you know, what have you heard and what's your message to people who might be listening about how to combat this? I'd say that the Asian Americans uh, have been viciously targeted and subjected to violent attacks, discrimination, and intolerance during the COVID-19 crisis, and hate has absolutely no place in our diversified, multicultural city or our nation, and this type of language and attack must stop. Uh, the president called the COVID-19 uh, virus the, quote, Chinese virus. Uh, which was only, it was a, a disgusting thing to say, and it also threatened the safety of Asian Americans across our nation. I, I, uh, there have been a, a, a announcements of attacks and, and uh, nasty treatment, and I am very proud to support Congresswoman Grace Means' great resolution that condemns this hateful speech and takes a, a very strong stand against the rise of any anti-Asian sentiment in our country. So we've got just a few minutes left and at the outset of this uh, interview I mentioned that a number of your uh, colleagues in Congress have tested positive for the coronavirus. How, what has been the impact? How has this impacted you personally? Have you been tested? How are the, how are your staff members? Because I know we're all, all working remotely now, but you know, a lot of us were probably around folks who didn't even know that they, you know, were positive. They just weren't showing any symptoms. How has this been impacting you? Well, I think it impacts all of us and we all have a responsibility to be part of the answer, to work with our governor and our mayor on uh, getting the uh, resources to our hospitals, but also protecting other people. I have not been tested because I have not shown any symptoms, and members of my staff have not uh, been tested. We actually were probably the first uh, office on Capitol Hill to go to remote work or work from your home and also the uh, Oversight Committee was the first committee to go to remote work before it was even uh, called for by the uh, speaker to do so. Uh, it has broken my, my heart. I, I lost a very dear friend, Judy Reichheimer. She was a community leader, a former president of the Chelsea Reform Democratic Club. Uh, she loved this city. I, I say the city loved her back. And hearing of her death, it was devastating to me. I was very concerned about John Miller, the anti-terrorism uh, expert and leader for our city. I have worked with him on 
the Anti-Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, the 9-11 Health and Compensation Bill, and other aspects of uh, fighting uh, terror in our city. He was in critical condition for a while. Uh, God bless him. He's home with his family. Every day I know many, many more friends that are uh, sick. I don't know whether they want to have it made public that they are in the hospital, that they're fighting for their lives. Uh, the the sad truth is, uh, according to Governor Cuomo, if you go on a ventilator, and we are very short ventilators, we are fighting hard. I let a, a delegation letter, everybody signed on it, Republican and Democrat, and we need more ventilators desperately in the city. But if you go on a ventilator, you have a 20% chance of surviving. Uh, so it is, a, it is a critical disease, and we have a, a responsibility to practice the social distancing, stay at home, wash our hands, and make sure that we do not get infected, and very importantly, that we don't infect other people. I think the testing is the key to the answer of winning, because if you don't know that you are carrying it, and evidently a lot of young people can carry it and they have no symptoms, they don't even know that they have the coronavirus. You have to be tested to know whether you're a carrier. And the key, according to the government of South Korea, of how they were able to win this attack so far and to lower the number of cases, is that they tested everybody so that you know what protocols you should be following. I think that is a, a prime uh, part of winning this battle against the coronavirus, is testing everyone. And right now, we are only testing a fraction of people. And as I said in the beginning... The, Congresswoman, the men and women that are in the hospitals are not even being tested, are nurses and, and uh, doctors. And I, I think that's a, a scandal. And before I close, I do want you to tell our listeners if some of them want to get in touch with your office. I know you're all working remotely, but we're all connected on technology now. How can people find out more about your office, you, and get in touch with your office? Uh, I would re- recommend visiting my website, www.maloney.house.gov. I send out a memo every day on the number of uh, attacks, the number of tests, the number of actions that we're taking to protect and heal our people. And I I send out this via uh, email. I think you should uh, sign up for it and also post it on Twitter, Facebook, and my website. Now, my offices are closed. As I said, my staff are are working. uh, They've never worked harder. We're all in our homes. And you can call this number, 212-860-0606, to speak to a member of my staff for any federal casework. By the way, we brought over 40 people home that were stranded in other countries with the State Department. And my email is very important. It's called urgentnewyork12 at mail.house.gov. And that signals you are calling on a coronavirus issue. Again, I'll repeat, urgent New York 12 at mail.house.gov. And uh, we are there to uh, help you and work with you. I view uh, public service very much like a loan that I have to repay with 100% of my efforts every single day. So we're trying hard. We've brought some changes. It's not enough. We've passed three good bills. It's a start. We have much more we have to do. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. I want to thank you, and I want to thank WBAI for for bringing the news to us. 
You're a valuable part of the New York community and family. Thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, I'm going to get to my final guest for the day and I uh, just want to talk about one uh, you know, trend that we've been hearing a lot. And this is going to lead into my final guest, because amid the uncertainty swirling around the coronavirus pandemic, there's one intra incontrovertible fact. The steep number of fatalities among older individuals, particularly those with underlying medical conditions. World Health Organization reported that nearly everyone who died of coronavirus in Europe has been over the age of 60. And age is not the only factor because 8 in 10 deaths have occurred in people with at least one underlying medical condition, and in particular, uh, diabetes, hypertension, or cardiovascular diseases. So with that, I want to come to my final guest, Beth Finkel, New York State, uh, the New York State Director for AARP. She leads the day-to-day -day operations of AARP New York, which is the most visible organization in the state advocating for New York's 50-plus population. And during her tenure as state director, her, uh, her powerful lobbying efforts on behalf of their 2.6 million members have led to historic state reforms, including the passage of the CARE Act, assisted living protections, and anti-predatory lending. Welcome back to WBAI. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I was thinking about, um, I hope you're staying well, and I was thinking about how we sign off on our emails and our, we see people and we go, stay well, it's kind of an automatic, and, and today it sounds so different when we, we say to people, stay well, doesn't it? I agree. And in, in talking with uh, Carol Maloney a few moments ago, she was speaking about the people that she has lost or knows that have been uh, that have tested positive. It, it what's really clear is that by the time this pandemic runs its course, every single one of us will likely know someone that we've lost uh, or that people who have tested positive. If you think about that, it's, it's just astounding. Yes, it is. Two people in my apartment house, actually currently have it. So yes, absolutely. So uh, Beth, there was a study published this week in the journal The Lancet, which uh, looked at data from individuals who tested positive uh, for COVID-19 in a number of countries and found that the risk of death from the disease rose with each decade of age. What are you hearing from older New Yorkers about how this is Im impacting them? You know, it's funny. Um, on some on some level, older New Yorkers, you know, they've seen it all. They've lived it all. Uh, and if they, the crises that they've lived through in the decades of their lives have given them a built-in uh, resiliency in some ways and this kind of bank of knowledge that makes them feel like we're going to get through this. Uh, they grew up on stories of, you know, their family members getting through the Depression and the 1918 pandemic. And so, you know, they really are more heartened, I think, than, than sometimes than younger generations uh, because of that institutional experience that they have. So I, I think they're very, they're worried, but sometimes I, I worry that they're not worried enough because of that sense of we will get through this. What are some of the challenges that they're facing? Well, uh, first of all, uh, if you're an older person uh, and, you know, you're living alone, uh, it, the isolation issue is a major issue. Um, we know that uh, people who are isolated, it is uh, equal to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 
So it's very unhealthy for you in general. But in times like these, if you're alone and you don't have somebody to reach out to and hold their hand and, and give them a hug, uh, it's much, much more difficult. And so it's wonderful that, you know, there are uh, mental health services out there for folks that they can reach out to and, and they should reach out to it, them immediately so that they don't have to feel lonely and not feel reassured. And I know that AARP New York has been very focused in the past in advocating uh, around legislation regarding caregiving. Uh, my sense is that one of the struggles that many older individuals might be facing right now is to be able to have a caregiver because the caregivers themselves may be impacted by, uh, by coronavirus in their lives and in their families. Are you hearing about that as well? Absolutely, and I actually caught a little bit of what uh, Congresswoman Maloney was saying. And, you know, I think that the part about the caregivers is, uh, first of all, they have to stay healthy themselves. And we don't even know if they're being tested, right, or if they themselves know that they don't have the coronavirus. And that's a little scary. And then when you put on top of that that they are not being prioritized for PPE, protective garments, uh, protective masks, uh, so they're going into people's homes without those protections, um, both protecting themselves but also protecting the people they're caregiving for. There's a whole slew of issues around that. And you know, another thing that crosses my mind, uh, because I am an AARP member, and so I get all of your publications, and I notice in a number of them, there's always uh, information about how to uh, become more technologically adept. And in this world we're now living in, many of us, including me, have had to quickly learn how to use things like Zoom and Slack and a lot of other technology, even the way I'm broadcasting right now through a new process that WBAI has taught me. I, my assumption is that's probably going to be another obstacle uh, that many uh, older individuals are now facing because they're even more isolated, not knowing technology. Uh, my, uh, is ARP addressing this? Is this something that, well, that you've discussed? Really, I, we, we have. I think that's a really good point because I look at it from the opposite. Yes, um, people who have been out of the workplace for a very long time might have difficulty. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, this is an opportunity for those who even have rudimentary skills that they can really brush up on them because there's so much more um, on the Internet right now about learning these different tools. And, in fact, so many of these tools are not so hard. I went on Zoom for the first time last night, and it, it's so intuitive. You know, so you can go on Skype or any of these other uh, platforms uh, and learn them pretty quickly. And years ago, that was not the case. So I think that technology in many ways is catching up and, and moving forward. The most important part is for people to protect themselves because when you go on these platforms, they don't all have the same firewalls, the same safety for people. And plus, you know, when, when crises come, scammers come out of the woodwork. And so we're seeing a lot of fraud uh, messaging going out, people calling, um, especially older people, and uh, trying to take advantage of them in these times with, um, you know, I'll help you with the coronavirus. You need to take care of this. You need to take care of that. So, so people have to be skeptical. They have to check out the sources that they're getting their information from, um, and they have to be careful. And I'm glad you said that. So what are some of the resources that AARP provides to help older New Yorkers that can help them at this time? 
Well, we have actually have a Freud uh, Watch Network that they can go on aarp.org and find the Freud Watch Network. Um, they also can um, go on to ARP uh, website as an ARP Community Connections org that's AARP community directions.org which will connect older adults with mutual aid groups informal groups of volunteers who want to provide various assistance to their neighbors like getting groceries so I really recommend that um, also if you're here in New York and you are feeling isolated or a little lonely uh, if you if you call 311 in New York it's a great it's a great government that will direct you uh, to get help immediately. Uh, the, the mental health services through Thrive are up and running, and there's there's great people on these sites that really want to help you, and I recommend that highly. And we've got just about a minute or two left. At the outset of my conversation with you, I mentioned about your organization's lobbying efforts, your powerful lobbying efforts to get uh, legislation passed. Is ARP doing anything regarding government policies and legislation at this time that our listeners should know about? Boy, are we. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> I know. I'm only giving you a minute or two on this. All right. Well, I'll talk fast. <laughs> Today, actually, in the final budget in New York State, paid sick leave was put into place. And paid sick leave, people very often think, oh, I have a child I have to take care of. But in fact, if you are someone who's caring for an older adult, that also entitles you to paid sick leave. So that's a really important new piece that was in the budget. Very exciting. Um, also, within the federal stimulus package, ARP worked very hard to make sure that older adults were uh, very present on the minds of uh, the policymakers and um money especially to go into health care funding. And then finally, today we got great news from the Treasury on the stimulus package. You know, um, people will be getting those stimulus checks. And originally, the administration said that pe people whose income was only from Social Security uh, would have to fill out a short-form um, uh, tax filing. Um, and today they rescinded that, and they said if all if your income is entirely from Social Security, you will automatically get that stimulus uh, check, and you will not have to go in and fill out any forms uh, for taxes for this year for that. So that was a, a big win because that'll help get the money out to people so much faster. I could go on and on of all the other policy pieces that we're working on, but I assure you there are many. Uh, we also in the budget today was money for uh, legal aid to for uh, to stop foreclose to help people not get foreclosed on their homes. Uh, we've been working on the rent reform pieces. Uh, there's just you name the area that affects uh, 50 plus and their families, and we are on the front lines of it. And we would love to hear from people who want to get more involved or get more information, and they can go to aarp.org forward slash NY to get anything that they more that they want from AARP New York but we also have um, a coronavirus um, website that people can go to and that is um, AARP um, dot org and that is uh, uh, backslash coronavirus and you can find everything yeah. And with that, I want to thank you, Beth Finkel, New York State's Director for ARP, for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you for this wonderful service that you're doing, Jim. 
Thank you. So as we get, as I get ready to wrap up the show, I just want to thank our listeners again. I particularly I'm going to do this every show because he makes it so seamless. I want to thank Reggie Johnson in the studio for making these shows happen as best as possible. While all of us are doing the shows from our homes, Reggie's in that office and he's doing a fantastic job. That's why we're able to stay on the air as much as we can, bringing you fresh content like from Max and Murphy yesterday at five o'clock and again next week. Um, I will keep striving to bring you our dedicated BAI listeners some new and insightful interviews. If you are at home and you're wondering, because we didn't get to talk about this with uh, any guests, but nonprofits are suffering. Nonprofits in the city are struggling right now to survive. I hear about it every day. And WBAI is a place that you should consider supporting at this time to keep us on the air. You can give $5, $10, $15 a month, become a BAI buddy. There's multiple ways you can do this. We're all volunteers. We're trying to you know, do the best we can, and we, are, are, we ride on the funding that you provide us with. So the way you can do that is you can go to 516, just as what you have to call, 516-620-3602, or you can go online to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. Give to WBAI.org or just call that center. Please make a contribution. Become a BAI buddy like I am. I give a sustaining contribution once a month because I want to keep this non-corporate, non-commercial, progressive radio on the air. We've been on the air for 60 years. We want to be on the air for 60 more. I want to thank my guests today, uh, Congress Member Karen Maloney, uh, Beth Finkel, New York State Director of AARP, and our former New York State Governor David Patterson. Tune in to WBAI. BAI this Sunday at 6 o'clock for City Watch. We're going to have a special guest. Uh, you're going to love to hear her interview. I don't want to say what it is right now. I want to make sure it's happened by the time the show's over. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org. Go to Programs and Archives. The show's going to be up in 10 minutes. Thank you for tuning in today. My thoughts are with all of you. I wish you good health in the coming days and weeks. Have a great day.